Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangeley Capital, the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangeley, and with me as always is my co-host and Rangeley's founder, Chris Muth. It is Wednesday, July 6th, and today we're going to start by quickly talking about our favorite podcast topic so far, uh, and that is Yahoo. Is that Chris, I never know how to pronounce it. How do I pronounce this? Yahoo. Yahoo. I, I think I'm saying it right. No. I'm not. Okay. Yeah. That's uh, them selling their core business. And then we're quickly going to move into something very related. Uh, Warren Buffett's role as the financer of choice for kind of large companies and uh, billionaires looking to finance deals. So, Chris, let's start with Yahoo selling their core business. You're giving me a little bit of credit. Uh, bids for their core business are due today. Uh, it seems like the remaining bidders are Verizon, who we are going to talk about as probably the front runner, Dan Gilbert, who's getting backed by Warren Buffett, and then some private equity firms. I think TPG is the one that's been mentioned most prominently. Uh, people have even speculated that maybe uh, the Japanese conglomerate SoftBank, which controls Yahoo Japan, but which Yahoo still has a stake in, uh, will enter the fray. So it's been a very interesting process. I'll let you start by talking about the process, the deal, everything you want to talk about. At this point, most of Yahoo's stock value is in Alibaba. So people talk about this process and the share price as if it's a one-to-one ratio. It's really not, um, but you have to think about it in terms of the Yahoo stub value. What it really is, is Yahoo is valued at, let's call it $35 per share right now. $34.50 $34.50 is in the Alibaba and Yahoo Japan value. And then the real question is how much of that upside is going to get captured by selling the, the 3 to $5 billion that the Yahoo core business will go for. So the reason it's so important is because it determines the incremental upside, not because it's the base of the valuation. Correct me if I'm wrong. Or so I, I think that's right. Yep. And then I'd also say it's further... Um, muddied by the fact that there are tax ramifications. It, so, so you have a big publicly traded sub, Alibaba, a secondly, fairly big publicly traded sub, Yahoo Japan, and then you have this process. Yep. And originally, to avoid the taxes, because they invested in Alibaba at like a $100 million valuation, and now it's worth billions and billions and billions of dollars, they were going to spin off Alibaba, but then the IRS said, no, you can't do that. So now they're selling their core business as an alternative to that, which is kind of to get around it. And it's further complicated because uh, for a while, even the company didn't know, are they selling all the patents they own and all the real estate they own in addition to the core business? Is it all one package? Is it separate? Go ahead. This has been a very leaky process. I Mm -hmm. think you could create some kind of drinking game around the process that relates to who made each link leak. And it's uh, unsurprising. Uh, The bidders uh, try to kind of downplay it and the target tries to upplay the value. And you can kind of almost article by article, some on the same day, kind of picture who would have, and in some cases I know, who did leak the information. It was funny because uh, within 24 hours at one point, Bloomberg, I think it was, reported, oh, yeah, he's getting terrible bids. They're all at $3 billion. So clearly that was coming from the bidders. And then 24 hours later, Wall Street Journal was at with an article, oh, all the bids are strong, over $5 billion. So they were clearly getting leaked from Yahoo. <laughs> yes. So you could really tell where everything was coming from. Yeah, the, the, big, the big news is that the bidders want a low price and the askers want a high price. Um, so you have a couple different categories. Clearly, in this case, you have both strategic bidders mm-hmm. and private equity bidders. Uh, The strategic bidders include Verizon, who wants this because they think it's really a strategic deal with AOL. And 
AT&T who wants this because they see Verizon's doing something, so they figure they better be doing the same thing too. Yeah, so uh, let's let's dive into Verizon a little bit. Sure. I think from the beginning we've said we think Verizon is the most likely to win. Why do they want it? They already own AOL, which is the sixth largest web property. They see by combining it with Yahoo, which is still actually the third largest web property out there, they think this would give them the scale to kind of be the third player to Facebook and Google in the online advertising market. Uh, I, I saw someone, an interesting thing that said, look, there'll be a long shot. But if you think about T-Mobile taking on Verizon and AT&T in the wireless market, that's kind of what Verizon would be like to Facebook and Google in mm-hmm. this market. And then incentives, as we talk about all the time on this podcast, incentives matter. And one thing to consider is both AOL CEO wants to get bigger mm-hmm. and uh, his boss, Verizon's head of product innovation, she wants to become Verizon CEO. And it, it's rumored that the way she does that is to make digital a success. So in many ways... Heads, I win if this uh, heads, I win if this bid's successful and I grow to become the third player. And tails, it doesn't matter if this if the acquisition fails because I wouldn't have been CEO anyway. So go ahead. Exactly, I think that it's exceedingly likely that Verizon ultimately is the winner here. When you have these uh, processes that involve both the private equity and the strategic, the, the strategic bidders just have more reasons to pay the full price, and that should be the market clearing price in this case. I, I think that others are kind of stalking horses. Dan Gilbert's bid, I think, is um, a very interesting one. I think his relationship with Warren Buffett gives him flexibility, but he's also price sensitive. I think Warren Buffett more than anybody, but uh, I'd associate myself with this. And a lot of people, when somebody says, are you interested in X? The answer is, oh, I'm endlessly interested It's just what's to the price. pay Why? the price yep. that makes sense for me. And there's this huge asymmetry between going through the process and killing the trees to print out all the docs and understanding it but then not moving forward because you're not going to overpay when you're talking about billions of dollars. And, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the difference between strategic and private equity. There are two interesting things here. A, Verizon's strategy would be to grow Yahoo and try and turn it into the third largest player or grow it from the third largest player. Private equity strategy would be milk it for cash flow, cut costs, sell off excess assets. So it's interesting the divergence of uh, strategies there. And then it's also kind of funny, you mentioned strategic should beat up private equity every time for assets. If you're a private equity firm and it turns out you beat a strategic player for uh, for an asset, you should look and go, oh, uh-oh, this, this isn't going to be good for me because you probably way overpaid for that asset. Absolutely. And Dan Gilbert is going to be a winner in 2016 no matter what. So he doesn't <laughs> have to worry about his ego, his manhood, or his uh, winner uh, status uh, after the end of the NBA uh, season. Chris is referring, of course, to the Cavs bringing a championship home to Cleveland, which Dan Gilbert obviously owns the Cavs. So you you mentioned Dan Gilbert a couple times. Mm -hmm. Let's turn to what we want to talk about on the podcast for the main portion, and that's Warren Buffett financing private deals. So Mm -hmm. here, Warren Buffett's going to finance uh, his Dan Gilbert's bid for Yahoo with financing, and this has turned into one of Buffett's kind of main sources of capital allocation. Uh, Just a couple of examples. During the financial crisis, he funded Goldman G and Harley-Davidson with high-yielding preferred stock with an equity kicker. Uh, He did it for Bank of America a few years after the crisis when they were kind of undergoing a turnaround and need some more capital. And we've mentioned him on the podcast providing financing for 3G's buyouts of both Burger King and Kraft. We mentioned the Kraft one on our June 1st podcast. So why don't you start by talking about why is Warren Buffett providing all of these financing deals? Sure. Um, uh Sure. Let me see if I can answer that. 
When you're an investor and you're trying to be rational and self-seeking, you look at the upside, the downside, the probability of a potential investment. However, one thing that should always give you pause is why has the market not corrected for that? Why is there a counterpart mm -hmm. that is willing to take mm -hmm. the other side of what you think is the best uh, probabilistic bet? And I think another question that investors always have to ask themselves is not just what do I think, but who am I? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? And I think Buffett really has gotten to the scale and uh, the reputation that he's able to kind of monetize universally his reputation and his identity in these deals that are just much, much better than market deals for anybody else. Yeah, and we'll talk about that in, we, in a second when we talk about why sellers do this. So Warren Buffett, he's got, but for him, he's got this great brand image. Yep. And by providing people financing, they're willing to give him kind of better than market terms because they know they get his good housekeeping seal of approval and they'll get better. The sellers will get better than market terms in other places. Uh, and Warren Buffett, so he kind of gets his terms by giving mm -hmm. his seal of approval. And his terms are often great. Their preferred stock, which is less risky than common stock. And they often carry high interest rates and equity kickers. So heads I win, tails I don't lose much. Uh, almost all of the recent ones have worked out fantastically. We can only point to a couple of duds, really. Uh, he helped finance the TXU LBO in 2007. That was the largest LBO in history. And he's called that one of his worst investments of all time. He lost a billion dollars plus mm -hmm. on it. And in the late 80s, early 90s, he did a preferred deal for US Air that went bankrupt. And he uh, kind of lost everything he invested in there. But on the whole, they've been amazing for him. And I think the one there are one or two other things, and I'll let you talk about them. There's a cost of carry trade, and there's pre-allocating capital. I'll let you take both of those. Yeah, I would say that he's very uniquely situated. You know, you think about the difference between a prop desk and a bank that can kind of call in capital, or an independent hedge fund. They typically have very different types of investing because they have a different cost of capital. He's in the unusual situation because of his insurance Float, that he doesn't really need to have to think that much about whether an investment is hot or cool. As long as it has a good expectancy, he can do a lot of different kind of things. Mm -hmm. And the prefs have just been a very good payoff structure for him because there's a big spread to what his capital costs and the availability of that capital and when he's getting paid. So the arithmetic works very easily. Exactly. Very well. So the insurance float that he has, it carries actually a negative cost, but you can think of it as a 0% cost. So if he invests that in something that's yielding 9%, provided it doesn't kind of, he doesn't lose money on the principal, then that yield is almost a free cost of carry trade. So it makes tons of sense for him. And then why don't you, well, you've talked about it a few times on the uh, podcast before. He also gets to pre-commit capital. And why don't you talk for a second about why he might want to do that? You want me to take it? Yeah. Yeah. So he gets to pre-commit capital. You know, he's not a spring chicken anymore. He's 83, 84, I believe. He's only got five, 10 years actuarially to keep running Berkshire. And every billion dollars that he allocates now is a billion dollar that his successor doesn't get to allocate. So I think that's uh part of why he wants to do all of these deals and kind of tie up capital. Anything there you want to go? I don't know. I've never heard him talk about uh, anything involving religion, the spiritual or faith life, but the extent that there is an afterlife, it for him is going to be Berkshire Hathaway. And he's creating this afterlife that is going to be Berkshire's uh, uh, capital allocations. And I know that, I, we, you know, we got in the one little uh, personal vignette this letter for him about the bet that we offered him when he said, Well, I don't want to take it because I don't want to think about another 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, he is making Berkshire Hathaway into 
the, his identity and the enunciation of what he thinks is valuable, which means that his successor will already have a lot of Buffett in Berkshire even after uh, Buffett's gone. And I, I don't want to dive into this point too deeply, but it is interesting to compare him to another kind of like mega, mo- mega mogul, uh, Summer Redstone, who mm-hmm. he kind of didn't prepare at all for his inevitable demise. He said he wanted to live forever. He acted that way when he set up his affairs. And now Viacom, CBS, everything's kind of in turmoil because he didn't prepare. Buffett is more than preparing. He's tying his successor's hands. So we know why Buffett does these financing deals. They're great deals for him. But let's talk about why, if you were someone who needed capital, why you might want to work with Warren Buffett over kind of like the traditional bank or credit hedge fund or something. Go ahead. Boy, uh are credit deals uh, lemming-like. You know, you wouldn't think that people would go to great schools and rise up in these cutthroat uh, uh, competitive environments to do anything other than think for themselves. But boy, you know, like you, the question they seem to ask themselves after all of that competition at every level of their lives are, so who else is doing it? And and it's just amazing. You could think that you could have a 10-year-old make an algorithm on a computer to answer that question. But if you can have a great investor with a great reputation, it's just worth so much. You get to overpay Warren Buffett. Well, I think it's kind of the incentives. If you work for a big fund and you lose money on any investment, you lose face. But if you lose money on an investment and you can say, oh, well, Warren Buffett lost money too, you kind of don't lose as much face. So that's part of it, right? Buffett's seal of approval. And there, anytime Warren Buffett invests in something, the everything else in that capital structure gets cheaper. And we saw it with uh, with Burger King. He did all those preferred deals with it, and then they raised nine billion dollars in debt. And everyone said the debt is coming at so much of a cheaper cost of capital because everyone says debt's in front of preferred. Buffett bought the preferred. We're in front of Buffett. He doesn't lose money. This is very safe stuff. I think there are a couple other reasons, and uh, maybe you can talk about this. I think his reputation for closing is a big advantage when he's uh, dealing with potential with potential buyers. I would discount a dollar uh, by Warren Buffett's word at nothing. I, I, I'd pay the a dollar's dollar. worth a full dollar. I, I, I exactly. Would, I would not like. I think it'd be incorrect to discount him by a penny. It's just wrong. I mean, just and 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 I'm a skeptical guy who you know I kind of usually tap out at ninety or ninety five percent, and most people are probably sixty or seventy cents on, on the dollar. Um, that he simply has uh, an almost irrational commitment to being reliable. So during the financial crisis, private equity funds were calling off deals and blowing up deals left and right. You thought you had financing and then the bank said, hey, sorry, I won't write that check. But Warren Buffett, uh, one of them was Dow was trying to buy Raman Haas in 2008. And uh, the deal, it quickly became apparent, was going to be a disaster. These were cyclical uh, commodity players. And, you know, when the economy cracks, it's terrible for them. And Warren Buffett legally probably could have found an out if he had not wanted to provide them with the financing he wanted. But he valued his reputation more than kind of the temporary sunk cost of investing in a bad deal. So he gave them the financing. Similarly, uh, Mars was buying Wrigley around that time, and he gave them, I think it was $4.4 billion to buy Wrigley. So these guys had his word, and he, he kept good to it. And I think people say, oh, if I get financing from him, I know he's going to follow through with this. I think one other thing that we should mention is you also get a quick yes or no. He doesn't have to deal with a committee. He does it in his head. He'll say yes or no within 15 minutes or a day or something. 
And you know there's not going to be leaks. We mentioned all the leaks on Yahoo, and that's because they're working with you know 17 different banks. If you only work with Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett doesn't leak the deal. So you know you're going to have confidentiality assured. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, we owned a position in BNI when he was in the process of buying it that was not one of the investments I've been proudest of because it was not elegant mathematically in terms of spreading the downside and the upside. Because I just looked at it and said, he's, gonna, he's not joking, he's yeah. not lying, and he has the financing and the regulatory approval. I'm just going to assume it gets done, and there's still some money to be made, so we owned a position. Um, I, I think that you could... Uh, uh, go out of business if you kind of casually said things like that. I just took him at his word in a way that I can't think of anybody else. I, t- I would take you at your word, but there's not that many people. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Warren Buffett's dealing on the scale of billions of dollars, and I'll be dealing um, on the scale of tens of and, dollars. And, and then the other issue I would say is that there are sometimes sincere players, but the process is just toxic. In the financial crisis, again, uh, Morgan Stanley had a deal with a, a Japanese creditor, yep, yep. and they said yes, but it was days later they could just get the mechanics through to move $9 billion. Warren Buffett has no process. Okay, so uh, we're almost out of time. I just want to quickly mention, we've talked about all the reasons people deal with Warren Buffett. There are some kind of big rich investors who are trying to get in on Buffett's territory. Uh, Coke Industries gave Apollo $750 million Mm -hmm. in preferreds for their recent ADT buyout. Uh, It makes a lot of sense, but I don't think Buffett has too much to worry about. You know, banks are backing out of this market, so rich investors are moving in. But Buffett's going to remain the gold standard because of all the things we just talked about. People are going to try to imitate him, but it'll be a poor imitation. I'll give you 10 seconds to have the last word if you want. Uh, having a big bankroll gives you an advantage even in a 50-50 game. If anybody's looked at Andy Beal playing poker, I think yep. that's what Warren Buffett does. And I think that's what the Koch brothers are doing, which is if you have a big enough bankroll, what you bring with that is a win well, even when you don't have other advantages. Well, having the big bankroll is a is an advantage, but in Buffett's case, he's got the big bankroll and decades of reputation to back it up so every he is the preferred choice for a lot of different reasons mm-hmm. i'm gonna wrap it up there if that's good with you i have nothing to great add. so that's all the time we have for today please be sure to take a second to read us on itunes stitcher audio boom if you don't mind if you have any feedback please be sure to email us at podcast at rangelycapital.com uh chris i don't have any disclosures when i i didn't write disclosures down i think you might be long yahoo and berkshire is that right uh correct and correct Correct and correct. Okay, perfect. Uh, That's all the time we have for today, and we will talk to you guys on Friday.